Well, the leaks are real. You're the one that wrote about them and reported them. I mean, the leaks are real. You know, Presidents don't like leaks unless they orchestrate the leaks themselves. It's complicated. No, I mean, really, it's complicated, this business of leaking. Thanks for tuning in to Many Things Considered. This is the podcast where we explore political history in order to help understand our current politics a little better. Uh, This assumes, of course, that our politics can be understood these days, but I digress. That's another episode. This episode is about leaking, the kind that makes front-page news and creates first-class political headaches. We're off to explore how some political stories happen. They leak. It's a short history of the leak. I'm Mark Johnson. What would a story about leaking political secrets be without some salty language, you've been warned, from Richard Nixon? Nixon really, really hated leaks. In this little snippet, Nixon is considering, along with his domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman, whether to prosecute the New York Times over the paper's publication of the super-secret Pentagon Papers in 1971. That leak is right up there in the all-time pantheon of big-time leaks. Warning, Nixon's language is not always approved for impressionable children. Hell, I wouldn't prosecute the Times. My view is to prosecute the goddamn pricks that gave it to him. Yeah, if you can find out who that is. Yeah, I know. You know, I listened to that exchange a dozen times in editing this piece, and it still makes me smile and cringe. An amazing piece of Nixonian history. Richard Nixon and the leak of what became known as the Pentagon Papers will figure in the second part of this episode. We'll also explore with historian Lynn Olson, author of a wonderful book about pre-World War II history called Those Angry Days, a huge leak of national security plans in 1941 during the administration of President Franklin Roosevelt. That leak, amazingly masterminded by the general in charge of U.S. Army Air Forces and facilitated by a United States senator, might in the whole scheme of things have been as big or even bigger than the Pentagon Papers. But the leak was spread across the front pages of the Chicago Tribune on December 4, 1941. Three days later, Pearl Harbor happened. We'll turn to that history in Part 2. But first, some contemporary reflections on the business of leaking. Here's the big problem for any president trying to contain leaks. Nixon and Ehrlichman identified the problem in that expletive not deleted clip that I played just a moment ago. It is often very difficult to figure out who's doing the leaking. The government is a big, sprawling, hard-to-manage enterprise. Everyone has a cell phone. It may be even more difficult to find a leaker in Donald Trump's administration than it was nearly a half century ago in Richard Nixon's. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I'm I'm David Uberti. I'm a staff writer for Columbia Journalism Review, where I write a lot about political media and changes to the news business. Uh, And I also host our weekly podcast, which is called The Kicker on uh, media and journalism. So I wanted to get the lowdown on the lowdown business of leaking, and I called up Dave Uberti in New York City. He's been watching and considering all these recent stories about leaks and leakers. I asked him just what was going on with these leaks during the early days of Donald Trump's presidency. It's certainly coming at a pace uh, 
the likes of which we have not seen before. And I think there's probably a few reasons for that. First and foremost among them is the fact that the Trump administration essentially put together a team uh, with very little advanced notice. So they cobbled together a variety of uh, different political professionals or Trump loyalists uh, people who have different motivations for serving in the administration. So when you read press reports, you you can sort of read between the lines and and gather whether people are basically making cries for help, saying, hey, uh, we want to talk to journalists anonymously in order to you know uh, educate the public on some of the dysfunction within the White House, or there are others who are certainly uh, at, at least – from my reading of the coverage, it appears as if they're they're leaking information to the press for more personal reasons or professional reasons, so as to make rivals within their office uh, look stupid. CNN can now confirm a report from Politico earlier today that Press Secretary Sean Spicer is cracking down on leaks at the White House, so much so that he called staffers into his office and demanded to see their cell phones to make sure that they weren't part of corresponding with reporters. And he actually asked uh, that staff not leak information about the meeting where he was talking about cracking down on the leaks. Oops, we hear about yeah, it. it so I just... Yeah, CNN's Dana Bash there. And of course it was candidate Donald Trump who in the 2016 campaign came to love leaks, particularly those flowing to the media through the hands of WikiLeaks, leaks of emails especially that helped undermine the candidacy of his opponent, Hillary Clinton. Now, this just came out. This just came out. WikiLeaks. I love WikiLeaks. Donald Trump may have found the truth in the old saying, where you stand depends upon where you sit. He's now convinced that leaking is bad. During the last campaign, when the media reported on Clinton's leaks, leaking was good. Lately, Trump has condemned the use of unnamed sources and vowed to crack down on leaks that may or may not have originated from within the nation's intelligence community. We just don't know for sure. He also fired his national security advisor, largely based on stories crafted from leaks by anonymous sources, the kind of anonymous sources that are often critical to illuminating political misbehavior. Here again is Dave Uberti, the Columbia Journalism Review analyst. When you see an anonymous source show up in a New York Times story or Washington Post story, that's not a decision that's taken lightly by the news organization. There are certainly arguments to be made that certain media outlets in particular rely too often on anonymous sources. And you see this a lot with sort of the really sort of inside baseball reporting on, say, Congress. Um, but I do think when you're talking about national security matters in particular or, you know, things that are happening within the White House itself, those are decisions that journalists, editors, and reporters take extremely seriously. I've been thinking a lot about this question of secrets and when it's okay in the broad public interest to reveal a secret. Donald Trump seems to be saying, as Richard Nixon did back in the 1970s, as Barack Obama did more recently in cracking down on leaks of national security material during his administration, that no leak is really acceptable. Republicans in Congress seem, at least so far, generally to agree. Idaho Republican Senator James Risch is a member of the Senate's Intelligence Committee, and he generally represents a GOP view on this matter. He recently spoke with the PBS NewsHour's Judy Woodruff. 
I can tell you that with the great body of intelligence information that's out there, not much of it is leaked out, but even a little bit of it being leaked out is way too much. It is very dangerous. It is un-American to leak. It puts uh, people's lives in jeopardy, and it really endangers the United States. Anyone who would leak national security issues should be ashamed of themselves, and they are not a credit to, uh, to America. But as you pointed out, very little of it is leaked. Very little of it is leaked, but any can be important and can put people's lives at risk. But let's just consider the idea that this whole issue is a bit more nuanced than the senator from Idaho suggests. I went looking for another perspective and called up Frederick A. O. Schwartz, Jr. Fritz Schwartz is now general counsel to the Brennan Center. But in the mid-1970s, he also served as counsel to the Church Committee, named after another Idaho senator, Frank Church, and more formally known as the Senate Select Committee to Study Government Operations with respect to intelligence activities. The Church Committee's investigation disclosed, among other things, assassination plots against foreign leaders, CIA spying on American citizens, FBI violations of laws and civil liberties. Fritz Schwartz says he quickly discovered there are two kinds of secrets. We recognized there were some legitimate secrets and that they, the legitimate ones deserved to be protected, and then the ones that weren't legitimate deserved to be exposed. And just what is an example of a legitimate secret? A legitimate secret would be something where it does not involve illegality or misconduct, and exposure might, for example, put in danger some individual. I mean, that's the, that's the best example of where the press ought to be careful and, and committees ought to be careful. Fritz Schwartz's book, Democracy in the Dark, also examines the issue of illegitimate secrets. And perhaps not surprisingly, Richard Nixon figures in a prominent example of the kind of secret that he believes deserves to be exposed. When Nixon and Kissinger during the Vietnam War started secretly bombing the country of Cambodia that we were not at war with, um, it was it would be legitimate to reveal that since you weren't endangering any um, any you know particular pilot and and you were exposing something that was not authorized. So you know on 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 any aspect of secrecy, you can you can analyze it a little bit and say yes and then yes but. So again, it is a matter of yes and then yes, but. You're listening to a short history of the leak. I'm Mark Johnson, and this is Many Things Considered, a podcast that examines our political history to help make better sense of our politics at the moment. Many Things Considered is supported by Gallatin Public Affairs, which hosts our website, Episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can subscribe and never miss an episode. You can also give us a rating there, which helps carry the word about these audio stories. You can also follow us on Facebook, where I try to go behind the scenes a bit and discuss how these episodes come together. I'm on Twitter at The Johnson Post, which is also my blog on history and politics. Message me with comments or suggestions for future episodes. We love to hear from you.
Now let's go to part two, the story of two very big leaks that have now started to recede into the mists of history. That this bill not only granted dictatorial powers to the president, but also is a step down the road toward Europe's wars. That's Senator Burton K. Wheeler of Montana, early in 1941, talking about congressional approval of controversial legislation, Franklin Roosevelt called it Lend-Lease, that gave the President of the United States sweeping powers to supply every type of weapon and materiel to Britain and gave Prime Minister Winston Churchill a chance to struggle on to stave off defeat at the hands of Nazi Germany. The U.S. was not yet at war, and Wheeler and other like-minded non-interventionists in Congress and significant numbers of the American public, were determined to avoid war at almost any cost. We think of our politics today as polarized and nasty, but few periods in American history rival 1941 for polarization or nastiness. The country was badly divided between those who, like FDR, were determined to aid Great Britain and those who thought such aid would surely lead to U.S. involvement in war. Historian Lynn Olson has written about the period in her book, Those Angry Days. Wheeler was was probably the main leader in Congress uh, on the isolation side. He was very much opposed to getting into the war. He was very anti-Franklin Roosevelt. All during 1941, Burton K. Wheeler and his like-minded colleagues battled the administration's foreign policy. Wheeler's great critique of the administration focused on the belief that Roosevelt just wasn't leveling with the country about his real intentions. FDR wanted war, Wheeler believed, and was secretly and unconstitutionally maneuvering to bring the U.S. into the war. He suspected the worst of Roosevelt's intentions. And when an Army Air Force captain showed up at his Washington home one evening in early December 1941, he had a big document in hand, a victory plan, for how the U.S. was going to conduct a global war. It seemed like a bombshell, and Wheeler believed that he finally had proof of Roosevelt's misdirection about preparations for war. Historian Lynn Olson picks up the story as the Air Force officer arrived at Senator Wheeler's home. He gave him the chance to look at the victory program plan and uh, smuggled it out, wrapped in brown paper, smuggled it out of, uh, of the War Department, and uh, took it to Wheeler's house, and the two of them went over it late one night, and uh, uh, Wheeler's stenographer took down, you know, the, the important elements uh, of the plan, and then the Air Force officer returned <laughs> the uh, plan to the War Department, and Wheeler then handed over uh, what he had taken uh, from the plan to a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And, and that reporter then wrote a story that was uh, on the front page of the Tribune and then, of course, uh, became a front page story all over the country. And, and the, the, the gist of the story was that the Roosevelt administration had a top secret plan to get into the war. The victory plan called for a 10 million man military, a war on a global scale, even suggested a strategy to defeat Nazi Germany first before dealing with Imperial Japan. But here's the truly remarkable part of this 75-year-old story, the big leak of 1941. Just who authorized this amazing leak of super-secret documents? The leaker, the main leaker, was uh, uh, General Hap Arnold, who was head of the Air Force uh, at the time. Whoa, let's unpack this. 
The President of the United States personally orders up a contingency plan, super top secret, about what the nation might do if it becomes involved in World War II. Deep in the bowels of the War Department in Washington, analysts and planners draft a report, the Victory Plan. And then Major General Henry Hap Arnold, the top guy in the Army Air Forces, connives to leak the report to a fierce critic of the president. Hap Arnold was just not another general. Literally, he was the father of the modern Air Force. The birth and growth of our Air Force into the powerful fighting unit it is today began within the United States Army. During this period, for almost his entire 46 years of service, General Hap Arnold, commanding general of the Army Air Forces, completely dedicated himself to building America's strength in the skies. Historian Lynn Olson says General Arnold had complicated motives for leaking the super-secret plan, complicated motives often being a feature of the high-profile political leak. He was not anxious at all to get into a war, uh, into World War II. Uh, and the reason was because he felt that the Air Force was not strong enough um, to get in. And he was also um, very upset about this plan, this victory plan, or victory program plan, which was really a contingency plan um, for how the U.S. would fight a war uh, if and when it did get in. Uh, it was not a, you know, it was not a, battle plan. It was not a set-in-stone plan. It was if, in fact, the U.S. found itself at war, how would we go about fighting it? Arnold was also motivated by what often motivates leakers. He was waging an internal bureaucratic battle over access to resources and prominence with rival military branches. Hap Arnold felt that the Air Force was getting the short end of the stick, that the the Navy... (laughs) was getting uh, what he thought the uh, far too much uh, money and, and would take far too big a role uh, in fighting the war. And so that, that was one reason why he did, in fact, leak the plan. He was hoping to scuttle um, this plan uh, and to embarrass the president. Um, and, uh, and, and I guess deep in his, his heart, he hoped that it would, uh, it would mean that the U.S. would not get into the war. The big leak, as it became known, infuriated Franklin Roosevelt. Presidents, like I said, don't like leaks unless they authorize them themselves. And an investigation was ordered. But remember the time frame here. The Chicago Tribune story about the war plans hits the front pages on December 4th. There was actually talk about um, of uh, filing charges against the Tribune for treason. Um, but Roosevelt said, no, we're going to abide by the idea of a free press. But they, he did order the FBI and other agencies to begin an investigation on where that leak came from. And the FBI did indeed start an investigation, and uh, it did lead right to uh, Hap Arnold. But in the meantime, you know, they were doing this investigation. In the meantime, Pearl Harbor happened. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th pushed the big leak far onto the back burner, and it was quickly all but forgotten. It seems likely that Roosevelt and many others in his administration knew that General Arnold was involved, but in the interest of projecting a unified front to the nation, the general's role was never fully revealed until years later. Lynn Olson's book finally completed the unraveling of the mystery. 
Arnold, for his part, retired in 1946 and remains one of a handful of men to have earned five stars. He remains the only five-star general of the Air Force and a great leaker. Senator Wheeler's role in the big leak remained secret until he published his memoir in 1962. He outed himself as the leaker who gave the war plan documents to the Chicago Tribune. On June 13, 1971, the top of the front page of the New York Times featured a three-column headline that stunned official Washington, even though the headline itself was kind of bland. It read, Vietnam Archive, Pentagon Study Traces Three Decades of Growing U.S. Involvement. Later that day, Richard Nixon, the 37th President of the United States, made a phone call to Brigadier General Alexander Haig a rising star in national security circles and at that time a White House advisor. Nixon wanted to check on the latest casualty figures from Vietnam. General Haig had other worries. Hello. General Haig, sir. Ready. Hello. Yes, sir. Hi, Al. How, uh, what about the casualties, Leslie? You got the figure yet? Uh, no, sir, but I think it's going to be quite low. Uh, mm-hmm. It should be as, should be as last week or better. Yeah, because it should be less than 20, 20 I would think, yeah. Be very they, uh, when do you get that? Do you would you know? Uh, we don't get it officially till Monday afternoon, uh, mm-hmm. but we can get a reading on it. Right. Well, Monday afternoon officially. Well, let's wait till then. Fine. Okay. Nothing else of interest in the world. Yes, today? sir. Very significant. This uh, goddamn New York Times expose of the most highly classified documents of the war. Oh, that I see. That, that, I didn't read the story, but uh, you mean that that was leaked out of the Pentagon? Sir, uh, the whole study that was done for McNamara and then carried on after McNamara left by Clifford and the Peaceniks over there, this is a devastating uh, security breach of of the greatest magnitude of anything I've well, seen. Well, what uh, what's being done about it then? I mean, I didn't... Uh, I did we know this was coming out? No, we did not, sir. Uh, yeah. There are just a few copies of this. Well, what about the... Volume report. Well, what about the... Uh, let me ask you this, though. What about the uh, what about Laird? What's he going to do about it? Is uh, well, I uh, now I I just start right at the top and fire some people. I mean, whoever, whatever department it came out of, I'd fire the top guy. Yes, sir. Well, I'm sure it came from defense, and I'm sure it was stolen at at the time of the turnover of the administration. Oh, it's two years old then. I'm sure it is, and they've been holding it for a juicy time, and I think they've thrown it out to affect Hatfield McGovern. That's my own estimate. But it's it's something that it's a mixed bag. It's a it's a tough attack on Kennedy. Uh, it shows that the genesis of the war uh, really occurred during yeah. the '61. Yeah, that's Clifford. Yeah, I see. And uh, it's brutal on President Johnson. They're going to end up in a massive gut fight in the Democratic Party on this thing. Are they? It's a, there's some uh, very. But also massive against the war. Against the war. Uh, but it's a Pentagon study, huh? That is one amazing phone call. Nixon moves from not having read the front page story in the Times about the Pentagon Papers leak to immediately believing that Defense Secretary Melvin Laird should start at the top and fire some people over the leak. Then, as the reality of the impact of all this leaking settles in, the president realizes there might be implications in Congress where debate is underway. That's the reference to Hatfield McGovern, 
a proposal to end funding for the war in Vietnam. And then Nixon ultimately realizes that the leaked information about the tortured path to the war in Vietnam, winding through Republican and Democratic administrations, would surely stiffen public opposition to the war. Nixon did not yet know that the leaker was a little-known analyst for the RAND Corporation, a research organization under contract to the Pentagon by the name of Daniel Ellsberg. Tom Wells is Ellsberg's biographer. I reached him via Skype at his home in Colorado and asked him about Ellsberg's motivation for leaking the Pentagon Papers. I mean, one thing, he, he, he certainly turned against the war, and he was hoping that if these uh, papers got out, that it would have a big impact on public opinion and help turn even more people against the war. I think he, he thought the Pentagon Papers would have quite a large impact. Um, I think he also, like, he, he's known for having a, a fairly large ego, and I think he liked to be prominent, you know, and he handled himself well in the spotlight. But so I think that was part of the mix, you know, public attention. Uh, I'm sure there are a whole, you know, whole host of factors, but um, those were certainly two of them, two of the most uh, prominent ones. But he definitely wanted to end the war. And by that point, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd come out strongly against the war. The Nixon administration, desperate to control the unfolding scandal and prevent further revelations, did what administrations often do when it comes to leaks. They overreacted. Here's a portion of another Nixon call the day the New York Times broke the big story. The first voice you hear is John Ehrlichman, the president's top domestic policy advisor. You can hear these guys in real time discussing whether to try to prevent further publication of the Pentagon Papers. Hello. It's Mr. Ehrlichman calling you, sir. Yeah, okay. Hello. Mr. Mr. President, the Attorney General's called a couple times about these New York Times stories, and he's advised by his people that unless he puts the Times on notice, uh, he's probably going to waive any right of prosecution against the newspaper. And he is calling now to see if you would approve his uh, putting them on notice before their first edition for tomorrow comes out. I realize there are negatives to this in terms of the vote on the Hill. You mean to prosecute the Times? Right. Hell, I wouldn't prosecute the Times. My view is to prosecute the goddamn pricks that gave it to him. Yeah, if you can find out who that is. Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, could the Times be prosecuted? Uh, apparently so. Wait a minute, wait a minute. They, uh, on the other hand, they're going to run another story tomorrow. Right. Why do you just wait till after that one? Well, his, his point is that um, uh, he feels he has to give them some sort of advance notice, and then if they go ahead in disregard, why then uh, yeah. there's no, no danger of waiver. But uh, if he doesn't give them notice, then it's almost like entrapment. Uh, we sit here and let them go ahead on a course of conduct and don't raise any objection. Well, could he wait one more day? They have, they have one more day after that. I don't know. I don't know. He apparently feels under some, some pressure to uh, either decide to do it or not do it. <laughs> Does he have a judgment himself as to whether he wants to or not? Yeah, I think he wants to. Uh, you might want to give him a call and talk with him about it directly. As I, I'm, I'm not very well posted yeah. on this whole thing. How do you feel about it? Well, uh, I'd, I'd kind of like to have a cause of action against him in the sock in case we needed it. I'd hate to, I'd hate to waive something as good as that. 
but uh, I don't I don't know what mm -hmm. the uh, ramifications would be in terms of the hill. Oh hell, it isn't going to affect the vote, in my opinion. Just. Mm-hmm. Would you want to take a call from him? And oh, yeah, I'll, I'll call all right. him. I'll call him. Good. Okay. Thank you. Again, here's Daniel Ellsberg's biographer, Tom Wells. Nixon thought it was a, an act of treason to uh, be passing classified information to the media. And he probably thought it was treasonous to the New York Times to publish classified material. One more call from the Nixon archives. Nixon talks with his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. They still aren't aware of who the leaker is, but perhaps Kissinger, the wiliest of wily bureaucratic infighters and a great leaker in his own right, already suspects that the culprit may be Daniel Ellsberg, whom Kissinger has known and worked with for some time. Listen carefully to Kissinger. You can almost see that he's covering his own rear end with President Nixon. Hello. Mr. President, I have Dr. Kissinger calling you. Ellsberg's biographer Tom Wells says Nixon should have focused on the fact that the Pentagon Papers illustrated mismanagement of Vietnam policy in the two previous Democratic administrations. That's what Kissinger was making clear in that call you just heard. But, of course, Nixon couldn't help himself. A lot of it has to do with, you know, Richard Nixon's attitude towards leaks and Richard Nixon's attitude towards the press and Richard Nixon's attitudes towards enemies. And those were like uh, hot button issues for him. And I think, you know, the combining, you know, a major leak uh, with with the collusion of the press. And uh, by this point, Nixon's um, sensitivity to enemies is pretty well developed. Right. Several years into his administration, I think the combination of those things, uh, you know, really triggered him. But I but I but I believe, you know, a number of people talk about Henry Kissinger being particularly influential in Nixon getting riled up about the Pentagon Papers when maybe he wasn't so riled up initially. The government soon went to court seeking to stop further publication, and the Times was quickly enjoined from publishing. The first time in American history the newspaper had been restrained from publishing by a court order. Ellsberg responded by giving the Pentagon Papers to the Washington Post, which then published its own stories a decision made entirely by the paper's publisher, the legendary Catherine Graham, a decision now widely viewed as a gutsy affirmation of press freedom. Eventually, in a landmark decision, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the right for the newspapers to publish. The vote was 6-3. to three. Nixon was outraged by the court's decision, as he said in a telephone call with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. President Edgar, yeah. 
I wanted to tell you that I was so damn mad when that Supreme Court had to come down. I did, first, I didn't like their decision, but unbelievable, wasn't it? It was unbelievable. You know, those clowns we've got on there, I, I'll tell you, I hope I outlive the bastards. Well, I hope yeah. you do, too. I mean, politically, too, because by, we've got to change that court. I, there's no question yeah. about that whatsoever. Yeah. I had thought it was a possibility of a five to four. Yeah. You know, I thought I thought we ought to get white. What's the matter with him? I don't. Well, of course, with a white is a yeah. whole Kennedy yeah. crowd. Right. Though. But then the other one, no. What in the hell is the matter with Stewart? Well, Stewart is a is a it, very wishy-washy individual. He switches from one side to yeah, the other. Yeah, And yeah. Uh, I wasn't surprised that he... Yeah. The references there are to Supreme Court Justices Byron Wizard White and Potter Stewart. Both justices voted in the majority to uphold the right of publication of the Pentagon Papers. The court ruled that using a vague word like national security was not adequate to allow the government to, quote, abrogate the fundamental law embodied in the First Amendment. FBI Director Hoover counseled Nixon to leave well enough alone regarding any follow-up on the celebrated leak. Here's more of their truly remarkable exchange. Listen closely. You'll hear the beginning of what became known as the Watergate scandal. A lot of people have a feeling that I ought to... Uh, not a lot. Some They're all mixed, as a matter of fact. Some people think that now that this court has acted that I ought to make a statement about the freedom of the press and that we are trying to censor them and so forth. My inclination, whatever is worth, is not to say so. I'll tell you. I think you're right. Uh, I, I kind of think I should stay out. But what's your what's your public relations judgment on it, Edgar? I'd just like to know. public relations judgment, uh, Mr. President, is that you should remain absolutely silent about it. You would, huh? I would. Now, what's your, now you, you don't think that the, that that's uh, any great problem that they uh, they've been uh, uh, you know that naturally been charging that we have been trying to keep the press from printing the truth about well, the war I don't and so think forth. That, that's involved because, as a matter of fact, these papers don't harm you one bit. No, actually, that stories in the in the in the Post and Times this morning were all about Kennedy and well, DM. Kennedy, he was the one who started it, and then yeah. Lyndon Johnson escalated it. And then you inherited it, and you have brought it down. You never sent an additional man in there, but you brought it down. Yeah. And I think what they're trying to do is to bait you into, into taking a position that uh, the freedom of the press ought not be to that, to that extent. And yeah. I think we ought to be awful careful what we do in this case of this man Ellsberg. Because mm-hmm. there again, they're going to make a martyr out of him. Mm-hmm. All of the press of the country are going to cause, come to the front mm-hmm. end uh, that he's a martyr. Yeah. And when you, what the Supreme Court has now said, uh, I doubt whether we're going to be able to get a conviction of him. Mm-hmm. I hope so, but I doubt it. We've got a good, strong case on him. Mm-hmm. And his wife, test- his first wife, testified very uh, vigorously against him. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a good, strong case. But well, I'd like to check some of the other people around him. That's the others. There's, I think exactly. there's a conspiracy involved here. Of course, this fellow Sheehan of the New York Times is involved. This fellow Jack Anderson here in Washington, that skunk that we have here. Is he in it, too? Oh, yeah, he's in it. He was at the, at the Post yeah. and had copies made. Yeah. I saw her on the TV last night, Mrs. Graham. I would have thought she's about 85 years old. She's yeah. only about, I think, uh, something oh. like 57. Oh, no, I know that. Yeah. And I, I had an idea she was a great deal older when I looked at her last night. Yeah. She's aged terribly. She's a terrible old bag. Oh, she's an old bitch in my estimation. <laughs> That's right.
But uh, I, I, I think from your point of view, it would be very advised. You don't think we should? I should say anything. I don't think point. you should say anything. I, I, Just let it cool off. Let the papers come out and let them reflect on whoever they reflect. What they want to print, it doesn't reflect upon you. You had nothing to do with all of this. Washington Post publisher Catherine Graham, an elegant, witty, crafty businesswoman, likely would have considered those comments from Nixon and Hoover a badge of honor. Nixon, of course, did not leave well enough alone. His private security unit, they became known as the White House Plumbers. They were supposed to plug the leaks that were bedeviling Nixon's administration. Instead, broke into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist office, looking for dirt that they might in turn leak to the press, discrediting Ellsberg. This was really the beginning of the illegality that we now know as Watergate, the abuses that ultimately drove Nixon from office. It all started with a leak. Again, here's author Tom Wells. They were going to leak heavily uh, to punish a leaker, right? There's certain hypocrisy there. But um, G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard rounded up some uh, Cubans, former CIA people, to break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office in Beverly Hills. Uh, It would have been, you know, several months after the Pentagon Papers came out. So I think it was like early September 71. The Trump administration has had some success in muddying the waters about the leaks that brought down National Security Advisor Michael Flynn by labeling those leaks in the New York Times and Washington Post and other places as involving matters of national security. Fritz Schwartz of the Brennan Center, you'll remember he was also counsel to the Church Committee's investigation of the intelligence agencies in the 70s. Fritz Schwartz says the Trump administration is just wrong in its characterization. They have been calling these national security secrets that are being leaked. That is not correct. There are secrets that are being leaked. But when when the FBI, I guess it's the FBI, has leaked things about their investigation into the contacts with Russia, those aren't national security secrets. Now, I think... Frankly, the FBI shouldn't be leaking about an investigation. They should conduct the investigation and then have a result. But on the other hand, labeling these as national security leaks or as harmful to national security, they're not either a national security leak nor are they harmful to national security. And Tom Wells, Daniel Ellsberg's biographer, says there are some eerie Nixon-Trump parallels in what's been going on in the first weeks of the Trump presidency. When Trump expressed his outrage over leaks, you know, early on in his administration, I immediately thought of Nixon. Very early in his own administration, Richard Nixon was ordering wiretaps and lie detector tests to try and identify leakers. Who knows? Is history repeating? Here's Dave Uberti of the Columbia Journalism Review. There are certainly repercussions that these people face, and when re- when leaking information to the press, uh, anonymous sources certainly put their safety and their careers on the line. Um, it, it obviously, of course, also depends on who is doing the leaking. I would be willing to bet that people such as Spicer have leaked to the press, Kellyanne Conway, some of the Trump loyalists within the administration. Donald Trump himself has made a name, name for himself in New York for – posing as anonymous sources in in New York tabloid stories. So I think it does, 
you know, depend on who is leaking the information, what information they're leaking, uh, when you're when you're talking about or thinking about or expecting any repercussions to individual leakers. Here's a fundamental point to keep in mind. Leaks are a fact of life in politics. Always have been. Again, here's biographer Tom Wells. While every administration suffers leaks, every administration also leaks. So it's an interesting situation. I mean, they leak, but they also are, you know, are always complaining about leaks. A couple final thoughts in a moment, but I want to thank historian Lynn Olson, author of Those Angry Days. She has a new book out soon entitled Last Hope Island, the story of how Britain became a place of sanctuary for the governments and armed forces of six occupied nations who escaped there to continue the fight against Nazi Germany during World War II. Tom Wells's book on America's most celebrated leaker is called Wild Man, The Life and Times of Daniel Ellsberg. Henry Kissinger called him the most dangerous man in America. Fritz Schwartz's book, Democracy in the Dark, The Seduction of Government Secrecy, was published in 2015. You can follow David Uberti's work on the business of journalism at Columbia Journalism Review, a great source for insight into how journalists do their jobs. Dave's podcast, It's Really Good, is called The Kicker, and you can find it as you can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the usual places. By the way, the Pentagon Papers are now available online at the National Archives. You can look at all of these documents, 40-some volumes, and see what all the fuss was about, making your own judgments about the decisions made over decades by Republican and Democratic presidents. Maybe you'll decide, as Daniel Ellsberg did, that a good deal of hubris was exhibited by presidents and generals. They made miscalculations, displayed incompetence, and, of course, maintained, until 1971, all of that secrecy. Secrecy that led to the deaths of 57,000 Americans and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese. Governments do have legitimate secrets, but often, frequently, if history is any guide, Secrets are maintained in order not to embarrass the decision-makers. Leaking of secret information, as I said, it's a complicated business. Many Things Considered enjoys the support of Gallatin Public Affairs, whose colleagues host our website and put up with me, while also providing sterling counsel at the intersection of business, politics, the media, and government, in the Pacific Northwest and beyond. You can find them on the web at Gallatin Public Affairs. So I'm going to leave you with this. A couple of paragraphs that a friend in the news business sent me when he learned I was working on this episode on leaks. And here's the quote. The Society of Professional Journalists' Code of Ethics stresses the importance of journalists identifying their sources. The public is entitled to as much information as possible to judge the reliability and motivation of sources. Cases do exist where the importance of that information outweighs the need for journalists to identify their sources, however. Those include cases where the source may face danger, retribution, or other harm, and have information that could not be obtained any other way. In those cases, journalists and news organizations must thoroughly explain why sources are granted anonymity.
That's how anonymous sources work and why leaks, particularly those that expose wrongdoing or just plain incompetence, can be critical to the functioning of a democratic society and a free press. In the end, perhaps we should all ask ourselves a basic question. Would you rather know more about what your government is doing or less? A little advice from a confirmed skeptic. Don't take much of anything at face value. Question. Read lots of different things, particularly those outside of your own comfort zone. Do what good journalists do and ask questions. Be a skeptic. Don't ignore your own eyes and ears in favor of accepting something at face value that supports your own bias. Citizenship is more than agreeing or disagreeing. It's about engaging and questioning and constantly learning. So now, please go read some history. It'll help you understand our current world a little better. I guarantee it. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Mark Johnson.